I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Hannah Dolby's first job was in the circus, and she has aimed to keep life interesting since. She trained as a journalist in Hastings and has worked in PR for many years, promoting museums, galleries, palaces, gardens, and even Dolly the Sheep. She completed the Curtis Brown Selective three-month novel writing course, and she won runner-up in the Comedy Women in Print Awards for her first novel, with the prize of a place in an MA in comedy writing at the University of Falmouth. She currently lives in London, and her debut that we will discuss today, the one she won the awards for, is No Life for a Lady. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. Nice to meet you. I have just been dying to ask you about the circus. Please tell me (laughs) about what you did in the circus. I was very young. I was about 17 and it was a summer job and I was a fire steward, which involved standing by the tent flaps for three shows a day in case there was a fire, ready to evacuate the audience. (laughs) And it was actually quite a dull job, but I did get to watch three shows a day and I learned all the circus tricks and I learned that the clowns have all the power. Um, Really? Yes, the clowns ran the circus. They were the ones that had the purse strings and all the power. So it was it was very it was a really interesting job. We're going to talk about comedy and um, kind of the power of comedy in a novel. Tie that back to the clowns have the power. Just think from afar, observing them, the clowns can steal the show very quickly. Exactly, and humor has power. I think to change the atmosphere in the room. So I think it's not something to be underestimated. Well, I'm betting that you saw a lot of families and people in love and people fighting and parents and children. Do you ever think back on some of that when you're writing? Definitely. It's not a conscious thing, but I think that the people watching I've done over the years, I mean, the circus was only one of the very odd jobs I had. And I think all of them not only put me in situations where I had a good laugh, but um, also gave me that insight into people and quirks and how people get along and don't get along and all Mm -hmm. that pot boiler situation of people um, working together in occasionally hilarious situations that uh, really set me up, I think, for life. Well, and you also went on to do a lot of PR jobs, galleries and museums. And then Dolly the Sheep. Can you tell us a little bit about that? (laughs) Of course. Yes, my job has in PR for various museums. And one of them was at the National Museum of Scotland, which is the the main museum in Edinburgh. And I was lucky enough, one of my first things I did was we did the PR moment for the unveiling of Dolly, who was, of course, the world's first cloned sheep. And after her death, she was, to use a phrase, stuffed and mounted by our taxidermists. (laughs) And, And so we had to unveil her to the world. And I do remember that morning of getting the event all ready and then hearing this knocking on the door and it was the world's media coming to take pictures of Dolly and interview our curators and I do remember the excitement of that and also it was quite funny. I spent most of my life in Texas and taxidermy you can walk into a beauty salon you can walk into a restaurant (laughs) Dolly could be just about anywhere. (laughs) 
taxidermy is amazing and I did get to see behind the scenes I mean that's some the lovely thing about some of the jobs I was in is that I got to see behind the scenes and I would see the taxidermists and I think they ordered their glass eyes from America so I think America has quite good trade in fake glass eyes of course we do <laughs> uh, there's always sort of thing that you discover and how an animal is created and that and put on display is quite a technical process so yeah there was really fascinating stuff and that I got to see from Egyptian mummies to Pixar animation studios all the different uh, exhibitions we had were really fascinating so oh. it was a privileged and exciting job I wanted to talk to you about your Curtis Brown course recently on the shit no one tells you about writing another podcast that we all love Bonnie Garmus was on and she was talking about how the Curtis Brown course helped her first of all did your paths cross I don't think so. I think I was a year or two before her. I think I was 2017 and I get the feeling she was 2019. I don't think we did. (laughs) Your project in the course, I'm assuming, was this book. Um, Yes, it was. So how did that work? Like you come into it with an idea or do you come into it with partial project or a full draft? So for me, I came to the Curtis Brown course with a very fledgling novel so the just the really the first few chapters and I think that kind of course probably does work better if you're slightly further down the line thinking it looking back on it and 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 understanding that process I think you can get more from the course if you have a a full novel or if you're quite far into a draft but that said I did find it an amazingly encouraging and kind of inspirational process and what was interesting for me was at that point my novel was very serious and I was trying really hard to be literary and seminal and important and so although I came out of the course and lots of writing skills it wasn't until a few years down the line that I found my voice and my way of writing which was funny. What happened that showed you that you need to write comedic literature? It was actually the Comedy Woman in Print Prize. So this is run by a comedian called um, Helen Lederer, who was in Absolutely Fabulous Comedy. And she's done a lot of comedy over the years. And she set up this prize for women writers, which is a fantastic prize. Um, And as soon as I saw it, I realised, so my novel still has the same heroine as it it did on the Curtis Brown course, but I realised I wanted a heroine who has fun and can seize life. She was having a very miserable and oppressed time. She was already married. She was sort of stuck, really. And and so I realised as soon as I realised I wanted her to have fun, it sort of set my writing free as well, because I could have fun with the writing and I could just play about. And I entered three chapters to the Comedy Women Print Prize and then got longlisted and had to submit the full novel, which was a slight panic. <laughs> but I managed to submit the full novel and I got um, joint second prize, which was amazing. So that's yes. kind of congratulations. Vacation. Thank you. Talking about comedy and talking about going back to those clowns that have the power. You know, you're kind of making me think. Some people, when they're insecure about what they're doing, they'll make jokes and that kind of covers the insecurity. A lot of other people might not show their comedic side because they don't feel like they have the power. Mm -hmm. So when you interjected this comedy into this character, how did it change her and how did it change that power dynamic? So I think that humor, from the writing point of view, I think injecting humor let me free so it set me free in, t- in terms of bringing out my silly, playful side. So it set me free to, to not be self-important. And so I could just write and I could have fun with the words because I could have fun with the words. It gave my character that freedom and it gave her the kind of 
joyous time that she has in the novel of running riot a little bit um, from all those Victorian, because it's set in very, you know, repressive Victorian times, gave her that freedom to escape some of those, or at least to look upon her life with a a fresher perspective than than she had, which I think helps her get through some of her adventures. Tell us about No Life for a Lady. It is the story of Violet Hamilton, who is unmarried, um, frantically avoiding the suitors her father sets up for her, not living a conventional Victorian life at all, and in fact searching for her mother, who went missing from Hastings Pier 10 years before. As you probably gathered, it's a funny, quirky entertaining novel some reviewers have described it as a warm hug um, or a duvet <laughs> so oh, a nice. kind of novel that hopefully uplifts people and and just gives them that escape from reality a bit of fun and I'm not ashamed of it being you know a light read we need more light reads right now at least on my side of the pond we do <laughs> I think I wrote it during lockdown as well. So I had oh, definitely yeah. this feeling it was freeing for me being stuck in the house and everything just to write this novel about a woman who runs about seaside town. <laughs> Can't get out? Well, let your character get out. <laughs> How do you think that she would do in 2023? I think she would cope very well. She's very curious. And I think what frustrates her in Victorian times is that as a woman, she's supposed to be innocent and she's supposed to be fairly ignorant and and I think she finds that really frustrating and she's constantly looking for ways to find out what she wants to know in life and I think today with the internet and with all the ways you have of just finding out whatever you want I think she would quite like that. Where did you get your inspiration to write in the setting of the 1800s but also this character? So I studied journalism in Hastings about 30 years ago. I remembered Hastings as a place of kind of crumbling Victorian grandeur. It's quite spectacular when you go there. You've got this promenade that reaches for miles and you've got lifts that take you up the hill and you've got a lot of echoes of that Victorian era and you can see how it must have been. And I've always loved the Victorian era, so I think I wanted to write about a Victorian woman and I wanted to write about the kind of specific challenges that women faced. And then when I brought that comedy element in, I wanted to write about a woman who navigates those challenges in her own way and who can escape the confines of what was expected of women in those days, I think. So that's kind of where it itchy sprung from. The more research I did, the more kind of detail and colour and things I could add to the Victorian era, which was really interesting. Were you able to include any of those evergreen issues that women face that maybe she was dealing with in the 1800s that we are still dealing with today? I tend to think there's a tiny bit of a Victorian Bridget Jones in her in that she's dealing with relationships with men and she's understanding who she is in the world and how she's dealing with, obviously, with the disappearance of her mother. And her mother was very beautiful, very charming, very attractive, very good socially and has left her daughter Violet a little bit sort of lost in this world of social things she has to navigate. And also, I think the whole idea of understanding relationships in those days without having your mother around to explain to you, for example, what happens on your wedding night, um, <laughs> it's very complicated and difficult. So I think although she faces different challenges of her time, I think she's quite relatable as a woman because she's still facing kind of challenges in understanding men. Does she ever understand men? Do any of us? 
<laughs> no offense, man, but, and they could say the same thing about us, I'm sure. <laughs> What's next for you? So I am currently writing a sequel. So luckily my publishers like book one enough um, that they commissioned me to write a second one. So Violet is having more adventures and um, I'm at the editing stage of that. So that will be out next year. Yay. Which is really exciting. Have you read anything interesting lately? Lots of books I've obviously read. So people have said my book's a little bit similar to Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Gummies. So I've read that and absolutely loved it and enjoyed the kind of the heroine and her her cleverness and, and the way she kind of navigates her time and what else have I read I read a lot a lot of the time I'm reading um Victorian books um, on costume and uh furniture and all sorts of things like that as oh, well wow. my fellow comedy woman in print award winner the, the the girl who actually won the prize Rebecca Rogers she's got a book out called Purgatory Poisoning as well so we're both published we were both published on the same day 2nd of March and she's got a lovely book out as well which is all about and a chap who has to he's killed and has to go back to life to solve his own murder which is great let's talk about things being evergreen why do you think these quirky female sleuths stay popular no matter what decade we're in people swallow them up what do you think it is about that I think it's about telling the woman's story because I think, I mean, one thing that attracted me about the Victorian era is that you feel like you hear women's stories through that filter of what you were allowed to say at that time, or, um, you know, it was a man writing about you, so you didn't get a real view. And so I feel when you write about female detectives, um, it's certainly the Victorian times what women thought and how they felt, but also I think it's quite exciting to bring out those specific female skills that make a good detective mm-hmm. as well. So I think, for example, women are really good at listening and really good at kind of taking in stimuli and kind of watching and learning. And, and so it's quite exciting, I think, to bring out the strengths that make women good detectives. Um, so I've quite enjoyed doing that in, in my novel as well. When you began writing, you said you started writing this novel, you were looking at a more literary approach. And then when you brought the comedy in, it kind of bloomed. First of all, how did she change from that first version to when you started to inject the comedy? I think she became less of a good woman. So at the beginning, she was very, <laughs> she was completely miserable. She was trapped in a, a miserable marriage and she was seriously not very happy. And I do remember somebody on the Curtis Brown course saying to me, that isn't going to work as a novel concept, which is quite hard to hear. When you're starting out, Um, and I think that did knock me a bit, but I think actually looking back, they had a point because it wasn't until Violet changed into a character who perhaps lies a little, perhaps schemes a little, isn't quite so good, isn't quite so serious, um, perhaps likes to laugh at the quirks of other people as she navigates life. I think that's when she took off as a character and became a, a bit more real as well because I do feel that women in those times probably would have had to live life um with secrets in order to survive and in order to thrive I think they must have had to kind of not always be the perfect Victorian ideal that was pushed on them when you were hearing that for the first time when you were in that class and they're saying this vision that you have of this character is not going to work yes how did you come back from that I mean, because some people will hear that and they're done. They just walk away and like, okay, this isn't for me. 
What was it that made you stay in there? I think the fact that I I couldn't get away from Violet and writing her story and I felt her story wanted to be told. But also an important thing of being a writer that I'm learning and have learned even more in, in recent months looking at reviews and things is that you have to take the feedback that really suits you. You do have to get a bit of a thick hide just to to cope with with that kind of feedback because it will come from all directions and mm-hmm. not every moment will be positive but some of it will be really useful and some of it you might not realize is useful until years later but um yeah I think it's just that lesson of keeping going and taking the feedback that's useful to you and understand not everybody does give good feedback as well so it's understanding other people's agendas as well yeah I had a line in my first book it was a variation. I tried to clean it up a little bit, but I think I said opinions are like elbows. Everybody has at least one. <laughs> you can you can Google if you don't know what the original line is. <laughs> you ask someone to give you a review, and there are people that if you ask their opinion, they're going to give it. Yes. And sometimes it's just talk about power. It's like I want to tell you what I think you did wrong and did it right, and it's kind of a catch 22. Do you look at the reviews and say, okay, this is what they like. And we double down on it on my next book. Or do you just say, no, I don't want to look at the reviews because it hurts. That's the thing. You, you hear the Mm -hmm. one bad review Mm -hmm. and the 50 or a hundred others, you're like, oh, that's nice. But that one person said, you never forget that. (laughs) Completely. I remember somebody said they wanted to slap my main character around the head, which I thought was a bit harsh, but that was a (laughs) That was a four-star review as well, which <laughs> confused me slightly. But um, so you have to, yeah, you do have to take things with a pinch of salt. And some people are just having a bad day. Yep. I, think. <laughs> I had the one that said the only character in the book that they could relate to was a dog named Walter Cronkite. That was the only <laughs> character. And I was like, okay, well, I love Walter Cronkite, the dog. So that was like, okay, I there's some days I come home and the only person I can relate to are my dogs. So, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, obviously that person, maybe that's who they were. They were having a tough day. Who knows? So now that you're a seasoned author and you're editing your second novel in the series, where do you go for these quirky qualities? Like how do you change it up between book one and book two? It is a challenge. And I must say I have found book two harder to write than book one I think because you're trying to pick up threads from book one and you're trying to make sure it's still new and fresh and original as well but I feel my writing has got better as well just because it is my second book I'm so delighted that so many people like number one (laughs) the first book so um I think that process has been a great learning experience for me and I think when I get stuck, I always go back to research and researching the Victorian era because often when you research the history of Hastings or you research the history of what women wore, you often come up with a reality that just inspires you and sets you off on a new angle or a new story. And that's something I really love and I have to watch. That I don't spend my whole life <laughs> reading Victorian magazines and newspapers <laughs> it is so easy to get in those rabbit holes it is so easy you know you go looking for one little thing I did it today I can't tell you now what it was I was looking for but I needed one little thing and I opened a second tab and I mean I had to go stop go back to your manuscript stop doing that <laughs> I need somebody to slap my hand like you were saying about curiosity I mean the internet is so vast and there's so much you can learn writing a book gives you an opportunity to go deeper 
It's fantastic. And what often what I find is I'll come up with a slightly crazy plot point and I'll think, oh, no, that could not happen in real life. Um, like, for example, whether men bathed in their uh, nudity on a Hastings beach. I was like, I bet, I bet they didn't. I bet that didn't happen. But then you go and research and you look up on that fact. And yes, they did. They, they had it was a men's bathing area. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to, once you start looking into these facts, you often find out that the truth is there and also stranger sometimes than you think. Mm-hmm. When you're writing and you think, I'd like to borrow this real thing, and then you think, but it's too out there, no one will believe the real thing. So I've got to tame it down. Exactly. <laughs> yes. In this whole writing process, what would you say is your most fortunate mistake? I think the best thing I did was when I won the Comedy Women in Print Awards, um, a couple of people said to me, you must submit to agents immediately. You must submit a pitch to agents. Get it off, get it off, get it off. And so all that week when I was really high from the awards, I wrote a pitch to five agents and I hadn't really written a pitch before. And I compared myself to, I think, Oscar Wilde and P.G. Wojtas. And I wrote this kind of self-aggrandizing, slightly cringy pitch <laughs> and I sent it off and all those agents rejected me, unsurprisingly, because I probably sounded like I had a very big head. And I think that was quite lucky because only a month or so later, I managed to get taken on by Diana Bowman, who's my current agent and who is fantastic and I couldn't have a better agent. So I think, yeah, that was a lucky mistake that I learned from um, and wouldn't do again. What was it internally that you did in that month or so that kind of changed the way you looked at how you approached querying? I think um, I actually ordered a a book online, which is always my um, <laughs> always my go-to. And the Writers and Artists Yearbook do a wonderful book called How to Hook an Agent. And I read through that and, and then felt a great deal of embarrassment about what I'd done the first time around. <laughs> so I think it is just that looking out there for all the resources and not being frightened to use them. At least you waited till you won an award. <laughs> I'm not going to say who, but someone sitting in this room finished her manuscript and shot off a query that same day had never done a query before (laughs) yeah I was like I'm 47 years old I gotta get started only so many years to write all these books I've got to get an agent not my wisest decision but then it wasn't my dumbest decision either (laughs) but then again it's so exciting and wouldn't it have been amazing if that one you know that first bit should come come true so in a way you know that was courage and that that was you just taking a risk which I think is often what you had to do I mean that's what I did with the comedy women in print awards just chucked three chapters in got long listed had to write the full novel in about three weeks um (laughs) and um, I'd still to this day don't know how I did it but it was (laughs) taking a punt and just seeing what what life would bring and it brought results what did those three weeks look like um, I have no idea to this day how I did it. I, and I was working full time as well because I got a day job. So every evening I would finish at the dot five and then just plow into writing. And I still don't know how I wrote. Uh, I think it was about 50,000 words I wrote. There was something about the joy of a deadline and the joy of doing it. If you worked in communications, you'll know about that yes. deadline driven process. Mm-hmm. And I think 
that set me free as well because I just had to write. I just had to get the words down and get them out there. So when you're not having to write 50,000 words in three weeks and turn it in, what does your writing day typically look like? I'm still doing the day job. So usually it's an evening thing where I have my dinner and then I settle down and do two or three hours um, every evening and sometimes at weekends as well. And I've tried to train myself to write wherever I am. I can't remember who gave very good advice, but somebody did. So, you know, if I'm on a train or if I'm at a cafe or whatever, I'll try and just tune out the noise around me and just write. Um, And I find that works quite well for me too. So, yeah, just grabbing every moment I have, really. You're a busy lady. (laughs) I am a very busy lady. What do you say is the most fun about this writing life? I think it is meeting other writers because I have... Since I've been published, since before I've been published, I've built a bit of community with other women who've been shortlisted for the or longlisted for the Comedy Women in Print Awards. I've met other people who are published, and some of whom are quite successful. And I think that really helps you, especially when you're a debut novelist and you don't quite know what to expect or what you should be doing, and you want to get it all right perfect it's really lovely to have that community of people you can just reach out to and say should I be in every bookshop in the country immediately or should I be a bit more patient (laughs) when you boil it down man or a woman Danielle Steele or you know me you're you're literally putting one word down at a time we're all doing the exact same thing all working with the same alphabet so it's like there's a lot of luck to it but you know we are and it's it's just a it's true It's a little bit of a crapshoot. Would you want to walk away from it once you started? Definitely not. No, no. I mean, it is it is a roller coaster, but but the highs are pretty good. I think. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, and I need to get better at this. It's about giving yourself permission just to be happy with what you've achieved so far. So. It's very easy to say, I've just published a book and now I'm going to worry about sales. Whereas really you should just say, I've published a book and I'm so happy to have had a book published that looks gorgeous. And Oh, it is a beautiful book. Because you see these novels that are set in Victorian times. A lot of them look very similar. We didn't know it was Victorian you sure. might not know, you know, if you have to kind of look like she's got a fan in her hand and her dress is longer. It's a fresh take on Victorian times. It's very well done. Beautiful. It is really. It was it was head of Zeus. I am very happy with it. I've been proud of it since day one. As soon as it showed up in my mail, it's great cover. <laughs> it's really fun. Do you have any advice for those that are just starting to think, maybe I want to try this out. Maybe I want to put a few words on the page. What would you tell them? For me, what worked best was finding my voice. So working out what made the writing easy for me. And for me, it was about being playful and having fun and just bringing out that child in me that had no rules and no restrictions and just wrote for the fun of it without too much self-censorship. That might not work for other people, but for me, I feel like don't try to be someone else. I think I spent too long trying to be someone else. Just find what voice you're comfortable with and what kind of book you're comfortable with writing. And it might not be the book you think you should write, but it might be the one that you love and that everybody else loves. So, you know, give it a try. I think that's my main advice is just find out what makes you tick. To learn more, follow Hannah at Lady Dolby on Twitter or Dolby underscore Hannah on Instagram. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. 
Thanks so much for your support.